Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics, Adventures in New Age and the Occult. I'm your host, Morgan Dolan. And I'm Norm. I'm here to learn. We're here to explore the people and phenomena that have shaped how we understand the unseen world. And today we have a special guest in with us to shed light on the military during this era that we've been covering in our remote viewing episodes, as well as give some context to the extent of military bureaucracy during this era, as well as what's the nature of a dead-end job in the military. (laughs) And if I may editorialize, beyond his subject matter expertise and firsthand experience, (laughs) just a beautiful man. (laughs) So since I won't be able to get through this interview without slipping up, I should probably disclose right away that this man is also my father. Yes. Who also has known Norm now for more than a decade. And remarkably, has been relatively tight-lipped about contextualizing his time in the Army. So, Dad, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to have you. Glad to be here. So, just to get us started, can you tell us about your position and years in the Army? Yeah, I was a um, first lieutenant in the infantry and uh, specialized in psychological operations. And what Mm. years were you doing this? 1970 to 1972, the Wonder Years. The Wonder Years. So you went into ROTC with awareness of what was happening in Vietnam? Yes, in a way. I mean, the problem is that I came from a family where everybody was an officer or had been an officer, Uh. would be an officer, and there were no options other than you're going to go into the army as an officer. Remember, that was the era that the draft lottery was still happening. Oh, I'm I'm very aware, yeah. And, you know, you had a choice. You could run the risk of being drafted and you knew where you'd go, or you could train to be an officer and hopefully have a little more control over your destiny. Yeah, the only way to have any agency would be to, well, even if you volunteer and you don't really have agency, you would have to go through officer training. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that was I wanted to get an extension so that I could finish up some courses for Medica pre-med. Unfortunately, um, the Vietnam War was happening and the military people said, well, we're not going to do that, but I'll tell you what, we'll give you any, your choice of any combat branch you want. Wow. So I chose the one where I could hide behind rocks. And... <laughs> this might be a good time to define what is PSYOPs. Yeah. Well, that's, that's because I majored in psychology in college. I contacted psychological operations in North Carolina, told them I was coming in and uh, requested that I be assigned to their service. So psychological operations is part of the Special Operations Command in Fort Bragg, what used to be Fort Bragg, and it's attached to the Special Forces. It provides, in our case, it provided all the different ways that you could address the hearts and minds of the enemy and persuade them to do various things that would benefit your side. In Fort Bragg, for example, we jumped into on exercises, uh, we parachuted in with the um, special forces, and uh, you'd be attached to a special forces team as their psychological operations officer, and you would, you know, perform psyops at their level. In Vietnam, psyops, the unit I was with, did things like flying over enemy positions uh, with leaflets, running rivers with uh, the Chu Hoi program, which I did. Chu Hoi meaning, uh, come on over. Hey, everything's great. This is, uh, it'll be like broadcasting to your buddies. Hey, Joe, Joe, I came over. You know, it's it's good out here. You don't need to squat in the jungle, etc. Come on in. Everything will be fine. And you'd hope that uh, nobody shot at you from the riverbanks. Did they? No, I. but I was on the other side of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> You're in support of army operations, military operations. And where does PSYOPs go after the war? What was your understanding of where you would have been placed afterwards had you stayed in PSYOPs? PSYOPs was always headquartered at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. 
and wasn't going anywhere. And it was, it's a dead end job because it's a specialist job. Nobody with a career mind would ever want to be in psychological operations. And that's one of the problems with the army bureaucracy was that the highest rank that you would obtain is lieutenant colonel. And that would be unacceptable for some young officer coming in who wanted to make a career. And they didn't, it, it didn't place very high up on most commanders' lists of, of desirable units to use. Am I understanding you correctly in saying the more you specialize, or if you specialize in any military function, that puts a ceiling on how far you can advance? Absolutely. I've been spending a great deal of time looking at books and articles on army bureaucracy now and what it was then. And it's it's been the same. It's always been the same since 1947 was when they had the first major reorganization of the mm. various armed services. But they instituted an upper-out policy, which is still policy that they use. And every chief of staff, every major general, every... Every leader of every branch since then has, has invaded against the bureaucracy uh, in the armed services. And they've made little changes here and there. But the major policy is that you are an officer in a position for a certain period of time doing mm -hmm. certain things. If you are not promoted, you're out. And so it really is an up or out system. They have a real problem it's, it's still there and it's really become much more acute with specialized positions, cypers, specialists, any, any specialty, um, language speaking, any of that stuff that isn't part of the mainstream command up or out situation is real hard to fill because you will not get promoted and you certainly won't get up to a general rank if you're a specialist. So. They have a real hard time filling those positions, which is difficult when your mission is not to fight the Russians. It's it's right. really gotten much more diffused. Uh, what do you do with Al-Qaeda? What do you do with ISIS? And so far, what they've mainly done is depend on special operations units, which is a short-term strategy. So to bring it back around to our main protagonists in yeah. the story of remote viewing, how would you contextualize your understanding of where they were situated at Fort Meade? In their unit? Well, when you put somebody in buildings that are only vacant because they haven't been torn down yet, that, <laughs> that pretty much shows you where you're at with Army intelligence. I'm not surprised they were clandestine. I'm not surprised that their funding was buried under other things. No politician would want his name or her name attached to something like remote viewing. That's, that's like, we're going to determine how will defeat Putin by having a seance? <laughs> you know, it's one step away from people saying they're fairies in the bottom of my garden. It's, that uh, just doesn't equate with the standard mission parameters of any of the services. So I'm not surprised that remote viewing was hidden. I'm only surprised that it stayed around as long as it did. Well, based on what you're saying, this is hyper-specialized. No one really wants to be associated with it. And it's by definition a dead end for anyone who goes into it. So it sounds like on the one hand, this was never going to work in terms of gaining traction and adoption, but someone must have wanted it and had enough pull to make it happen. I'm kind of struggling to understand how they reconcile that. They didn't. That's why they defunded it. <laughs> but it had a good run. Like several it, it years. Had, it had a good run, but when you've got a command structure that requires absolutely accurate, detailed intelligence that you can pick up from drones, from satellites, mm. whatever, when you're talking about remote viewing, it's not that way. It's by nature much more diffuse. It's, it may be accurate, but it's, it's not something that you can hold in your hand. And that's what they required when they're going up the chain. It, you know, don't forget the, the a decision to deal with one of your adversary problems doesn't just begin and stop with a general, for example, in, in Afghanistan. It's, it involves an entire command structure up and down. I'm not surprised that they tried it because of the threat from the uh, Soviets. The CIA, I'm not surprised that they got into it first. 
they even sent someone down to the Monroe Institute that was started by Robert Monroe, the guy who was famous for journeys out of the body, to write a report on whether astral travel worked, whether his, his system worked. And when they began the remote viewing unit, one of the things they did was send personnel down to the Monroe Institute to go through that program mm -hmm. because remote viewing is intimately connected with that. Well, and this was during the Stubblebine era in the early 80s. Right. When <laughs> the heyday, really, because he was into it in a big way and sent everyone down until the one guy who wasn't properly vetted had a freak right. out and got bad publicity for everyone. Yeah, one of the one of the interesting things that they did, which I found fascinating, was because it's the army, they wanted to get rid of all of the woo-woo business right. and and do a method just like they do with every other field manual where they you could have Bozo the clown training everybody under him to do remote viewing because there'd be a one, two, three, four, here's what you do, you follow the manual. And they, as far as I know, they got Ingo Swan to actually produce that. And the misfortune was that they didn't keep him on. And so the people who trained the rest of the crew were people that he initially trained, but they didn't get it from the, the main source. But it was good enough to last for as long as it did. So if I'm reading between the lines, they want an absence of personality or personalization in order to standardize training and make it distributable. Yes. But it sounds like if you get into real high tier leadership, then suddenly your personality really matters and your judgment matters. Like you're you're out of an environment of standardized decision making. Yeah, one of the one of the things about any intelligence, whether, you know, I mean, there are, I looked at it, there's something like 21 different intelligence agencies in the United right. States. And while they're making a stab at coordinating them, each one really is jealously separate from the other. You don't hear about an individual at the bottom of the tier who's developing human intelligence, you know, from a source, making any of the decisions. That intelligence has to go up the line, usually through several layers of bureaucracy to the boss. And then the commands of what you do with it come down the line as well. You know, they don't want to have some psychic at the bottom of the chain who says, I have seen through Gorbachev's eyes. You mm -hmm. know, I've, I've accessed his, his mind in some fashion and have told him, you know, communism isn't working and the system should really go away. And that's what McMonagall ended up being tasked to do and said he did. Right. He was never sure because when you're doing this, you're never aware of the outcome. They won't tell you usually uh, unless it's a, I'm reading cards sort of thing. Right. But when you're in the, the real intelligence gathering, they don't want to influence any of your future vision by letting you know right. whether you're right or wrong. Can you imagine having the Joint Chiefs of Staff <laughs> of the United States? Whoa. <laughs> making a decision as to whether or not they're going to do something based on a unit with a bunch of psychics. And we're talking about, what, five or six <laughs> in an abandoned facility on in the scrublands of Fort Meade, somewhere in the hinterlands. <laughs> and they're all enlisted men. And they're the ones telling you what really is happening with the Wagner group, for example. <laughs> Okay, that's you. You'd you'd accept that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at it, but mm. you wouldn't make any decisions based. Well, on one that. of yeah. the things we identified when we were looking at the nature of remote viewing is that it the protocol requires feedback. You have to be able to confirm whether you was a hit or a miss. In our first episode, Norm, yeah, I think correctly guessed. Augusta golf course. Although, although, Norm, <laughs> although Norm said no, he was convinced he had. Yeah, he is, yeah. I saw the evidence. Uh, yeah. We differ. It could but go either way. That's when you're using this stuff in practice, you are stepping into the unknown. And as we saw from Stubblebine's attempt to use it on the ground in Panama, you miss those dogs and you really miss a key aspect of the mission success. Right. <laughs> that was one of the problems. You see a lot 
but you don't see that one fine detail that you need. And it probably was because Noriega had anti-curse papers in his shoes. I don't know. You know, it's... <laughs> to, to just extrapolate a little bit, could, if you were, let's say, trained in remote viewing, had, the, had a skill for it, could you imagine how you might have used it during your time in Vietnam? Uh, during my time, I would have been watching a lot of American movies if I... <laughs> If I could have done it. I mean, it's, I found Vietnam to be an absolute waste of my time. I don't know what other people, I didn't talk about that, but I thought it was stupid when I was there. And it was, it turned out, of course, that I'll give you an example. When PSYOPs moved out of Da Nang, I had a number of months to go. So I was attached to a headquarters company of a different unit. And one of the things we ended up doing, because this was 1971 and going into 1972, everybody knew that we were leaving. That mm -hmm. wasn't that wasn't a question. And the South Vietnamese Army was going to take over what we were doing. So we spent months washing and cleaning all of the military vehicles that we had, everything, so that they were spotless so that we could turn them over to the South Vietnamese. And within, what, eight months, yeah. six months, they all were ridden around by the North Vietnamese. Right. But, but they were clean. <laughs> that was an example to me of, you know, the waste of manpower and time. That was, that was just my, my personal feeling about, about the whole operation. I didn't think that PSYOPs accomplished much. And part of the, part of the difficulty was the whole vision of the war, which I don't, I don't, I don't need to get into, but sure. uh, you know, when you're sending people over that late, it's so unpopular. I mean, it's been dragging on. You're not making any progress. People come over, they don't know who. It's a guerrilla war in the main. They don't know who is a good guy, who's a bad guy, and psyops didn't really assist that much. I mean, dropping leaflets out of planes, which basically are are there to tell you. Things like the same as broadcasting from a, from a riverboat, you know, come on in. It's fine. Didn't accomplish much. I mean, we used to joke that they were using it as toilet paper, but we <laughs> helped, we helped them in that way. But I couldn't see that it had any positive advantage. But what if psyops, just to extrapolate a little in a little fun thought experiment was really psyops and <laughs> imagine that you had a remote viewing skill. How do you imagine it might have been used? or not have been used? Can you envision an alternate universe where it's being used in the field? Oh, yeah. I would, it would have been operationally used by, by Westmoreland and all the people in uh, Saigon. They, they would have had those people looking at where is the main element of the North Vietnamese army at this point? Where are they located? What's their strength? Where are they moving to? What do you see in terms of their operational capabilities? They would have been able to plan accordingly instead of blundering around and running into them. Yeah, they, and they could have been accessing uh, what is the leadership doing in Hanoi? What, you know, there's plenty of things that they would have been doing. And if they existed today, and given what's happening with the Senate at this <laughs> precise moment with UFOs <laughs> and the way that they were initially funded in the Army, it is impossible to say whether or not they still have a functioning unit somewhere. That would be so clandestine that, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to find it. If they did, you can bet they'd be dealing with the Wagner Group, the army in Ukraine, Putin himself, what's happening in the Kremlin, what's happening with various major players. And that would be a very logical thing to be doing. And we don't know whether they're doing it. Well, do you think that the story, the reason the story unfolded the way they did was partly because it came of age and came into implementation during a Cold War rather than a hot war? Would there mm. have been more acceptance for running this type of information up the chain when you're really in, a, in smaller units in the field? And if you get some good hits that save lives or have an impact, its institutional acceptance and use could have had a whole different story. In an alternate universe... The place to have your PSI operator would be at the um, company level where, you know, it's run by a captain. 
or a psychological person who with a special operations team like uh, special forces or any of the Delta forces, any of those things. I could see one attached to the SEALs. You know, at that level, if you were able to get information on the target that you were looking at, you know, what is the immediate goal that you had to do? And you're able to see it and relay information back. Yeah, it would be extremely valuable. I don't know how valuable it would be when you're going up through all of the bureaucracy to get to the Joint Chief of Staff with some report. You know, it's just the independence of the small unit operator and then there's the institutional problem. So smaller and more nimble applications as opposed to broad strategies. But that makes a lot of sense to me because yeah. of the way we can understand psychism as a, a latent human ability. So that was one of the things that came out of this exploration to remote viewing was that pretty much anyone can do it with the right training and developing it. And that implies that humans just in general have a psychic muscle we don't use. And what that leads us to is understanding that when we lived in different societies, hunter-gatherers, just smaller groups where you do have to lean on that muscle to say, do we go this way? Do we go that way? Is the caribou that way? Are we hunting over there? It seems to replicate that structure of what you just described. Yeah, I mean, it's an obviously it's a very old potential. It's a very old thing that people have, and we haven't used it because we depended on technology instead. And it's the same with, I suspect, any other psychic ability. It's once you've, once you've implemented technology and your focus is on science, then you're not going to be developing your psychic abilities. You don't need them. You're going to be concentrating on the other thing. And what's, what's going to be odd is they'll pop up in individuals, and then they'll be regarded as something that's an anomaly. It's witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And it's you're crazy. You're woo woo and weird. <laughs> Lock them away, uh, or now it's a little more accepted. So, but I think though that that does assume that we rely on technology and takes away our psychic ability. But I can see a lot of instances in my own life where, whether realizing it or not, I'm indexing the psychic muscle. So, for example, you're in a mall. You don't know what's there, where anything is, and you say, "I need a new pair of shoes." Take me someplace that has a new pair of shoes. And lo and behold, you stumble across the right store that has the right thing and you can get in and get out. This can be chalked up to, well, you're in a mall. Of course, they sell things. It's the playing the odds. But that's a very different way of going about something than checking your phone and finding what place sells the thing mm-hmm. and, and going down the ladder technology. of technology. Right. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, it's, you know, intuition, things like that is on that same scale. No, the real value of remote viewing for an armed service, I've, I've always thought, was assuming, which I do, it could be taught to anybody. Why not teach it to every single person mm-hmm. in a special forces team, every single person in a SEAL team, every single person who's doing a special operations anywhere? Because then you've got 10 people who can sit down and come up with uh, their own visions and then figure out where they're going with them. And it would seem that would seem to be to me much more valuable than just one. Especially since if you had only one, that person might be killed right. in an operation. What did you think of the moment in the narrative where they're going down to the Monroe Institute for the officer's astral program, where they wanted every officer in this command to have I'm going to say transcendental experience, but I might be getting the wrong word. Having an experience, an out-of-body experience, an expanding experience. If you're going to command a unit which is dealing with psychic phenomena, you better have some real experience with it. And what the real experience is, I'm not surprised they sent them down through the Gateway program. I mean, that's been going on for years, and Hemisync seemed to work, and whether or not you had an out-of-body experience or whether or not you just were able to get into a deep meditative trance-like state, it's extremely beneficial for people who are in charge of the mission to understand that, to have a feeling of that. I think that was a perfect thing to do. We keep talking about this idea of efficacy and reliability, you know, repeatability, but it sounds like you take a very 
negative or dismissive attitude toward your function in psyops. I'm I'm curious how you measured or how your efficacy was measured. Well, one of the problems with any bureaucracy, but I've been reading up an army bureaucracy, which mm-hmm. has really been resistant to the, all of the various attempts to change it is you cannot measure outcomes. You know, the outcome for the army is uh, your ability to conduct the mission, to conduct war. And are you good at that? Is your, is your unit going to succeed at that? What you can measure is output, things that you can reduce on paper. Remember in the Vietnam War, one of the ways they determined success was mm-hmm. we had X number of dead bodies and they'd show right. Yeah, we killed all these people. Yeah, success was a body count. And and that, you know, that's not really a measure of whether or not you're going to be successful in the outcome. I'm sure that the Russian army could look at Ukraine and, and come up with success parameters saying, look at mm-hmm. all of the cities we destroyed and we killed all these people. And then ask, well, why are we actually retreating? <laughs> mm-hmm. And why have we won this thing? And so they look at different things. I just read the the fact that the Department of Defense had, when this particular report was written, 770,000 civilians who were connected with the bureaucracy of the military. Now, figure that number, 770,000. And they impact everything from the regulations dealing with how units are run and measuring various things that one of the problems that they now have with the all volunteer army is you have a proliferation of jobs mm-hmm. down at the company level the operations level which have nothing to do with the mission of training your troops to fight you're talking about a fire safety officer right motorcycle safety officer arms room safety officer and then you know you've got something like Last, I looked at 23 different jobs that had nothing to do with your ultimate mission. And you had a decreasing number of people who were able to do them because the average number mm. of people in a company now is around 130. Well, that worked out to two jobs for every single person. And, you know, they, then there's annual inspections to make sure that all of the jots and tittles have been have been met, you know, for a lot of these jobs. They included multiple um, forms and paperwork and all that. It meant nothing, but it has to be done because somebody's going to check. Now, does that increase the ability of your unit to do its primary mission, or is that just paperwork? And unfortunately, that seems to be the besetting problem with large organizations and certainly military. And one of the difficulties that they found with the up and out system was the whole the whole thing was geared for the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And it was geared after 1947 to fight the Russians. That was what the whole army thing was for, the NATO thing. That was what was expected. So they had an emphasis on conventional warfare. And they determined that because World War II had been so physical, they needed young men to be in the service. So they have a system where most people are out by age 40. And if you're enlisted, you can be younger than that. The only ones that are kept are people who are the senior officers. And so you're constantly retraining new people while they're having major, major problems recruiting into the services these days. And part of the problem is society has changed. And, you know, it's becomes much more difficult to get people involved in an all-volunteer army. To borrow that extrapolation, was it? do you think society changed in a similar magnitude between 47 and the 70s? Yes. The, in, in the 50s, it was static. It just, the Korean War didn't do anything except cement that up-and-out mm. model. But flash forward to the 60s, and, and flash forward to the late 60s, and the huge anti-war movement. You had political uh, change. You had anti-war change. You had riots in the streets. You had sexual revolution beginning. You had women's rights starting to come out. You had major societal change of the young throwing off all of their parents' tradition. 
Remember the long hair? <laughs> and, you know, it came with a backlash because that came with the Archie Bunker, love it or leave it, Nixon business. So partly to diffuse the, the anti-war sentiments of the 68 through 70, uh, and the real violence that was going on was Nixon, he got rid of the draft and switched to the all-volunteer service. But he didn't stop the war. And while it quieted down a bit, it blew up again when we invaded Cambodia. That was still going on until we finally left. So, yeah, society erupted in major change. And we see generational change ever since then. I mean, look what's happened. Then then you had in the 70s, look at the societal change. Disco. Do you think you'd find disco in the service? I don't think so. And now we've gotten to hip hop and gangster rap and all that stuff. And that's what has happened that I can see with the service is that they've lowered their standards for admissibility. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get enough people in. And so they started fudging on the requirements. It used to be you can't come in with a felony, mm -hmm. a juvenile felony, anything like that. That's uh, That became a real fuzzy line. You had to have a certain amount of education. That became a real fuzzy line. I mean, it, we're not talking the officer corps. We're talking the enlisted ranks. Mm -hmm. Does that make it more understandable how a guy like... Ed Dames, who believes in UFOs, has a has a pretty full career as an enlisted man. Yeah, truly. Yeah, that would you know. <laughs> I think I think uh, I think that might be one explanation. You know, one way society has changed that would make it, on the one hand, more difficult to have a unit of remote viewers now, and yet at the same time promote it, is the schizophrenic split politically. Most people don't believe anything that the government has to say. They believe nothing that the government tells them. And yet, they believe in UFOs and they believe in psychic phenomena. The problem would be getting anybody to fund it. But assuming you could do that, the major problem after that is getting the military <laughs> to buy into it. Mm -hmm. again. And that, that would be a real difficult situation. I think you could sell remote viewing to the general public, mm. if you could get past the religious aspect and get the pastors on your side saying this is a human ability and not the work of the devil. Well, right. that's what I loved about the Stubblebine interlude where he's bending spoons and showing his very religious <laughs> superior officer that he can do it for him right at this party. Yeah. It, you know, that's that would be a major stumbling block, the religious aspect of it. But that's always been the case. I mean, if you look back on the witchcraft trials in in Europe that went on for 300 years, I mean, that was that was religiously driven. We still have religious witchcraft sort of Satanist stuff out here. Remember the Wenatchee sex pedophile Satanist ring that was supposed to have happened? I believe it was called the Wenatchee witch hunts in the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. And it, it had every hallmark of the old witchcraft hunts and turned out to be equally false. That's the problem that you'd have selling it to the greater public now, I would think, would be you'd have to demonstrate that this is a natural human ability and maybe have all of the pastors bend spoons. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> that, that might work. So when, when you talk about up and out and a lot of these things, to what extent is that just a reflection of the military trying to maintain cultural homogeneity, especially the further up the command structure and the power structure you go? That's exactly what it's all about. That's what that's what it's for. Then how does a free thinker like Stubblebine get all the way up there? How much Truly. is this really dominating your inner life, I guess, when you're in this type of environment? Or are they self-selecting for people that are more likely to lean this way or that way so that you're not trying to walk through a wall? In your office. I, su I suspect that he hid it and he hid what he felt. He hid what he thought. He hid what he could do in order to get promoted and go up the chain. When you're talking about homogeneity, you're talking about command to get to command. One of the requirements, it's not a, a we'd like it to happen. It's an absolute requirement that they passed in the, I think, the, the 80s, is that you have to have experience dealing in a joint command structure with other services if you're in the Army. Mm -hmm. That has to happen early in your career. 
you will not be promoted without that, without having some joint experience. In order to become a general, you have to command units. You have to command manpower. You've got to do the same things that everybody above you has done in order to go up the chain. They're not rewarding free thinkers. <laughs> That's not what they right, want. Right. They don't want a stubble buying. They don't want some woo guy in North Carolina. They want people who've commanded brigades, battalions, you know, in platoon, company, brigade, battalion, brigade, and so on. And to have been measured as successful by their superiors. And one way you are measured as successful is you're efficient and able to do that, but you also think the same way. And you guys have the same views. And so when you get up to the general staff, one of the reasons uh, General McMaster wrote his book, Dereliction of Duty, about the um, Joint Chiefs of Staff and LBJ with the Vietnam War was that they they, they were all the same. They, they were compliant. They said nothing. There was no independent thinking. There was no independent advice that made a difference. And um, that's kind of what's rewarded uh, in the command structure. That's how you get to be a general. And Petraeus, there's a book out called The Fourth Star, mm. and it's it's how, how you get there. And right. uh, Petraeus once said that nobody ever got promoted to general rank if their PhD dissertation was critical of the army. Right. And his was, but he didn't show anybody his PhD dissertation until he was a general. Then it came out. But that seems to be true. One of the guys, a guy named Nagel, came out, was an expert on counterinsurgency and the lessons from Vietnam and Malaysia, uh, Malaya when it was under the British. And he wrote a book, uh, his PhD dissertation turned into a book called Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife. Yeah. And that was a, a quote from T. Lawrence, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, when he said, yeah. trying to fight a, learning how to fight an insurgency, a uh, counterinsurgency is like learning how to eat soup with a knife. It's very inefficient. That came out. He was a lieutenant colonel. He never got promoted any further. And uh, he went from the, he retired. And went into a, a military think tank where he made lots more money and had more influence. But there were a lot of people in the army who was very aware that that was the main reason he didn't go up any further. So you've got a great homogenous thought pattern up there. And that, you know, it, it looks like it's not all that bad because the whole point of the mission at this juncture really has always been to fight the Soviets in Europe. Looks like we'd be doing that. I mean, given mm -hmm. recent, but counterinsurgency was a, is a totally different matter. Also, these things where you're fighting with proxy armies, just wearing you down. Afghanistan. I mean, it's just a war of attrition that goes on and on and on. And uh, are you equipped to really deal with that, with the modern army? This seems like a career choice or a way of living that it would be such pressure from the outside against a spiritual path on the inside, or against having any sort of inner life that is questioning existential things or living on a spiritual path outside of, I want to say, larger religious denominations that have social implications. And when we yeah. say the spiritual path, we mean the individual path of relating to the divine and to larger questions of humanity. There was a, a movie a long time ago with Ellen Burson, and she ended up having the ability to heal. And she got co-opted by a preacher, one of these televangelist people mm -hmm. who wanted her to preach, uh, to, to heal because of God and Jesus right. and all that, and it had nothing to do with that. And she blows him off, she rejects him and sinks back into just doesn't want anything to do with publicity or anything like that. In the last instance, she's at a gas station someplace in the hinterlands, and a kid who's sick or, or has some physical problems is there with his parents. They're getting gas, and she touches him to heal him. It's always been that way. If you have any talents psychically ever since, the, I think, humanity evolved, you keep it quiet because even personally, if you went in, if you were 
20 years old, something you're, you're hanging around, want to get a boyfriend, and you're... You're really blowing up my spot, Dad, by telling everyone I'm not 20 anymore. Uh, well, <laughs> just because you're 23, don't, don't, don't go crazy. But you think that your, your chances of having a serious relationship are enhanced when you tell someone that you're a psychic? It'd be like telling somebody, hey, I'm a witch. Well, it's it's gone. It was in vogue, I think, starting in the '60s. Introduce yourself by your astrological sign, was it not? Yes, but that's a far but that's cry an icebreaker. I'm I'm psychic, and by the way, I I do remote viewing, and uh, I can <laughs> right, I, right. I can see I can see what you're. As a matter of fact, I, if I concentrate, I can probably follow you around. Whoa! Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I can see that that would be an icebreaker right there. And if you're talking about an institution ever, I've never seen an institution that appreciated that unless uh, it's within the parameters of the religion. Example, the Catholic religion with various saints. You know, if you're St. Francis, mm. you know, you can talk to the birds and, and they just call it a miracle. But remember that after he died, Less than 100 years, I think 50 years later, if that, they were burning Franciscans at the stake, Right. the rest of the Catholic Church. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... I know the Mormon religion does allow for divine revelation. And it's interesting to me, though this is not a religious podcast, it's the separation between having a divine revelation by God and having this be accepted by a group and then versus the interpersonal the individual experience of feeling like you've communed with the divine versus people who think they've had a divine revelation and go on to commit acts that prove they probably didn't mm-hmm. well it, you know you're we're concentrating on remote viewing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not not the greater ESP but it's it's all lumped i think together in terms of psychic ability it goes through various stages a the first stage is, do you believe any of it? Do you believe it exists? I think it's been demonstrated that it does exist. B, where does it come from? Answer, eh, nobody knows. <laughs> right. C, is it God that, that you're getting? Are you communing with God? Or is this just like a sixth sense mm. and something that everybody possesses, but nobody's really used? And there's would probably be a way to regularize it. Mm-hmm. If you're if you go on the God side and and you go the religious side, then you come up with different explanations for it that really don't apply to this particular podcast. But if you're going with it's a sixth sense, then you have to have enough regularity in methodology that everybody can access it and mm-hmm. learn to do it. And if you had that then it would gradually be accepted by the public and uh, it would just be a regular sense that people use. And we're not there yet. That did seem to be the path that they were going down, though, with the remote viewing project, you know, as it crossed these different institutions. They they had to because you're dealing with uh, an organization that demands that you reduce things to a methodology that you can teach others. But within the cultural homogeneity that is really being heavily enforced, is Christianity part of that, either explicitly or sort of implicitly? Like, you have to be closeted if you have a New Age spiritual persuasion. What, a, what about other faith or that really mainstream? Yeah, were there any Christian hippies faith? in your unit? Secret hippies? Oh God, I'm sure everybody, everybody in that unit was a hippie, and secret. <laughs> and, and you know, one of the problems, of course, that they found in that particular war was, especially at that time. I mean, do you seriously want to be the last person killed before your country leaves that country? I mean, right. that was everybody knew we were leaving. It, it was only a question of when. And then, of course, it ultimately became a question of how quickly you got out with your right. tail between your legs. But no, it's, so you had major drug problems because people were smoking marijuana. They were smoking heroin. They didn't want to get out there. You had people fragging their officers, throwing grenades right. in their beds because they didn't want their officer telling them, you get out and go on patrol. And the officers didn't want to go on patrol because they didn't want to get killed either. I mean, so... 
you know, I mean, it was at that point, it was extremely, yeah, everybody in my unit was undoubtedly somebody who didn't particularly want to be there and would have been very receptive to ESP stuff. I mean, more socially, that feeling of someone when you can be like, oh, when you mention, oh, what's your astrology sign or that yeah. feeling that they're open to these alternative ideas or was that there was a was there a different secret code in the early 70s? Given the fact that all of the people in the unit were male, I didn't feel obliged to ask what their astrological sign was. <laughs> uh, that might have been might have been received in a different way. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but it does seem to follow that same kind of coded pattern, though. It like this is reminding me a lot of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," right? Where you you have to be in the closet in terms of your inner life. But, but remember, in terms of psychological operations, at, at least in Denang, I was about a year too late for the heyday. I mean, they they ended up sending the. The colonel, his executive officer, and several other officers back home in disgrace a year before. And they were all the PSYOPs people out of Denang because they were violating various things. So that in the Army is a different matter. Being open to psych psychic phenomenon, I don't think you'd ever find anyone in the Army who was looking at a career, whether it was as a non-commissioned officer sergeant, you know, or an officer who would ever, ever admit to having psychic ability, not if they wanted to get promoted. I, I must say that I have reached out to some people currently in the military establishment about coming on the show to discuss this, and they have not returned my emails. Yeah, uh, it's not a surprise. And, you know, I mean, it, it's the same as trying to get people on a podcast who are actively military in a career where they hope to right. go as far as they can and ask him, um, gee, have you, uh, have you watched Ken Burns' Vietnam? Mm -hmm. <laughs> have you read deeply on how flawed that war was from our perspective and why we should never have done it in the first place? And the fact that we were lied to consistently mm -hmm. by generations of politicians. And then you're asking somebody their opinion when they've been deployed to Afghanistan four times and have seen us leave with our tail between our legs out of there after 20 years, uh, they wouldn't respond to you because it would challenge their whole sense of worth. What? Why am I doing this? And I think it'd also be a little rude, depending on the context. Oh, it probably yeah. would be. But I mean, I think it would challenge their their real purpose, sense of purpose, if you did that. So, but when we get back to psychic phenomena, no, it's not a surprise. I mean, uh, if ordinary people are hesitant to... If you're in an organization, a regular company, let's say, and it's it's the Rand Corporation, do you think you'd be going around telling people that you're a psychic or you have psychic well, abilities? I mean, Ed Dames told everyone he was into UFOs. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, yeah, but he, he but. also was a wacko and was seen by even his fellow remote viewers as, as somebody who was a liar who took claim that he was the one responsible for all of these things he didn't himself do. He was the guiding light of the organization. He was the man. It's, it's kind of the same as listening to Trump tell everybody that you know, I'm the man. You know, I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the only one who can solve your problems. Well, how much of that, especially in the military context, how much of that is nomenclature? Because there are no UFOs, right? There's UAPs now. And I notice we've been talking for over an hour and you've never once described what you did in Vietnam as propaganda. It's psyops. Oh, it, no, it, it is. Oh, it's, it's total propaganda. You know, I haven't used it because I just didn't think of using the word. But yeah, you're the propaganda officer. And, you know, they've got them in, in all major army. I mean, the Russians have right. entire divisions and frankly, the reason it's picked up now, as opposed to then, is we have sophisticated tools. Remember, we didn't have right. computers. You know, you didn't have you didn't have cyber warriors and all that stuff. Right. Troll farms. And so, what you've got now has spread throughout the entire intelligence community. I mean, NSA. What do they do? They intercept cyber warfare from other countries. And we know that they're actively from at least two or three of these countries attempt to interfere with uh, American elections and British elections. We know that. So, I mean, propaganda 
has a long, long history. Right. And it goes back to ancient times. I've got a book on it, you know, propaganda in the ancient world. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's merely another word for persuasion. It's really unfortunate, though, that it uses the word sigh, which in, I think, episode one, we went to great lengths to be like, no, they're using it as the Greek yeah. placeholder for all these aspects of psychological right. things that are unexplained. And it's just really unfortunate that it is used all in psyops in this way. Well, it it pretties it up, you know. And what are you, you going to get anybody who wants to volunteer for the propaganda corps? I mean, <laughs> no, no, a psychological operation. Ooh, that's that's uh, that's scientific. You know? But a little rebrand, like remote viewing itself, is a rebrand to to take you one at least one level away from ESP or whatever you want to call it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they talk about ESP so much in the original source documents. They were looking for proof of kinetic psychokinesis of being able to move stuff with your mind. And they got remote viewing as just the ability that was replicable under lab conditions. Yeah, no, I I thought you two hit the nail on the head in your first podcast. That was the whole purpose of, of concentrating on this as opposed to something else. I mean, how useful is it to bend spoons? Eh. You know, could could you down an enemy's drones with your mind? Now, right. If you could replicate that and demonstrate that, they would have concentrated on that first. If they'd had drones in the 70s. Well, that was part of the problem. They didn't have drones at that time. <laughs> and they may be working on it now. We don't know. I want to um, sort of circle out of the focus on history into a little bit of the more individual, the individual seeker's path. Yeah. Have you have any, ever had any encounters with psychic phenomena or spiritual phenomena that was hard to impactful in any way? No, no. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I spent my working life as a criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> I don't want psychic, <laughs> I don't want psychic interactions <laughs> with any of the stuff that I do. <laughs> what is your relationship with new age thinking? I, I don't, Morgan, you'd be better at putting a name on all this, but I would rephrase it. I'd rephrase it in this way, because I think a lot of our audience might fall into this camp of haven't seen one yet, or would love to have an impactful, weird experience of the forest hasn't happened to me, and hasn't had that sort of firsthand experience. But what would you characterize your relationship with the spiritual path is in your own life? Oh, I'm very open to all of all of that in terms of uh, personal growth. You know, one of the questions I guess you get to is, do you believe that A, it exists? Yes. Do you believe it can be taught? Yes. Uh, would I like to learn it? Sure. That'd be great. I'd like to learn a lot of things. I've got tons of books on my tablet, which are teaching me things I could learn. <laughs> I haven't done it. Well, you're retired. You have no excuse for not pursuing these things. <laughs> I haven't done, I haven't done any of it. I spend my time gardening. Come on. Oh, good on you. And I, for one, have always thought it what was great was when psychedelics started coming in. And the people who use them for spiritual experiences instead of going to a Janis Joplin concert. (laughs) You know, that I think that's meaningful. And psychotherapy has shown increasingly that, uh, yeah, it is. But I have not personally had a deep psychic experience yet. I'm waiting for the ghost. I just don't want to be one first, okay? Conversely, then, where would you put yourself on the skeptic or even the cynic scale? Or spiritual but not religious scale. If religious is 100, I'm at a zero. (laughs) Okay. Is that agnostic or atheist? I think it's not affiliated with the church as an organization. Oh, I know. It goes further than that. No, I'm I'm an absolute atheist. Mm. And that would be a surprise, I suppose, to my deceased parents, but they were rabid Catholics, so... You know, I don't believe in any of that stuff. But in terms of are these things innate human abilities? We've seen enough research in brain structure and brain abilities over the last 20 years to be able to say there's plenty of things that, you know, I, I, I would believe that these things are entirely possible. And it's, it has nothing to do with, you know, religious stuff. It's got to do with your own innate human ability. In saying that you've never had a firsthand experience, is it because, as you said, as a lawyer, you're actively avoiding that environment? No, no, no. It's it's just that it's never occurred. I've never, mm. it's, it's, it's just I haven't, I'm open to it. I've just never had one. That's all. 
Give me the money and I'll head to the Monroe Institute. I expect that out of this podcast. Well, we'll put it on our Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Donate to those retirees the experience. Tier. Absolutely. I'm going to send the old man down there. But I think you would have found a real home with the Soviet invest psychic researchers who were mm. absolutely hell bent on finding the physical origin of psychic phenomena, which now I would imagine be in the brain under this paradigm. Oh, I, I would. I, I completely agree. I would have had a great time in the remote viewing unit. With stubble bind and the spoon bending. Yeah. If that, if that had, if they, anybody told me about that, I probably would have quit law and joined that group. <laughs> I wasn't looking to get promoted. <laughs> Not too late. We can start private. <laughs> <laughs> Never know. Let's group fund that. You know, go fund me. Have you ever participated in a debunking? Like you said, you haven't had the experience. Have you had a fake experience or someone faking it in front of you? Oh, oh no. This is a harbinger to our earlier mm. episodes about spiritualism where there was table knocks and... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah. I've, uh, I've never, after reading Houdini right. and dissing... Conan Doyle, who I thought went <laughs> well, off the rails when he got old. No, I, yeah. I never, I never bothered with. Actually, no, nobody I've ever known has invited me to a séance or ever had one. That might say something about you more than your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, you know. I, well, of course, I hung out with lawyers, and they are not right. noted for séances. So, <laughs> but would I go? Nah. <laughs> really. Not, not to a seance. No, I mean, I'm sorry. That's like, that's like saying the Ouija board gets in touch with the spirits. What you're talking about on this podcast is a human ability. It's not augmented by spirits coming down and, and you know, the spirits are helping you to remote view something. It's your brain. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had something, some technological way to increase the brain activity with this psychic ability, that'd be one thing that I'd participate in. I would argue, though, that if you had a framework for understanding spirits and relating to the divine, that could be leaned on to potentially augment one's effectiveness in engaging in remote viewing. Only if you were trying to look for the angels that dance on the heads of pins. Well, no, what I more mean is that if you have a sense of, okay, I'm connecting with a larger source, and then I think of it as a script like you do for hypnosis, and that script is rooted in a belief in the divine or in angels or something like that. And then because of that, you more easily give yourself over to the ability of the experience. It would be remarkably effective, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you can argue anything you'd like. When's the, here's, 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 here's one of the problems I have with that. Okay. Did you ever see that, that last photograph that when Voyager was leaving the Milky Way? Yeah. Sagan had it turned around so he could take a last picture of the neighborhood. On the back of his, I, I think his first book was that picture. And there was an arrow <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that pointed to where the earth was and you couldn't yeah. even see it. And it said, this is where everything that you know has happened. Every saint, every sinner, every dictator, everybody. If you've watched any of the programs on PBS about the universe, I mean, it's mm. pretty, you know, I, if you want to think that you can communicate with the spirit and enhance things that are human abilities, okay, but... Uh, I just don't happen to believe that. I'm, I'm, I'm endeavoring to reconcile a religious framework with this stuff. Don't at me, bro. You know, I know the title of the podcast and everything. Why is it necessary to augment what would otherwise be seen and recognized as a human ability that is teachable with something that is outside of you? Why not, though? Even if you're a materialist, you wear running shoes and that improves your stride or whatever. Like you use simple tools to augment your strength and help it go further. Well, here's the here's the one of the underlying issues I think that's that's always plagued ESP related matters. Psychic sure. matters. How do you prove them? Right. One of the one of the reasons that they had this great reliance on feedback early in the program, mm. was because you needed to prove that it existed. Mm -hmm. How do you prove spirits exist? Yeah. 
it's direct experience is usually the way but that is also (laughs) the issue that we got into with spiritualism itself was a key component yeah that's not proof at scale it's not proof at scale it's proof in the individual and i think in so much of the spiritual path and in engaging with psychic experiences or spiritual experiences the proof is an n of one it's a proof to oneself and then your own personal growth that comes from it not proof in a lab condition because as we saw with the remote viewing story that's pretty hard to get and it's not necessarily useful once you get it. Then it's a it's an open question whether or not someone who has an intense spiritual experience would be able to better access an innate human ability. Mm. And that might or might not be true, but it really depends on an individual. And it's really not provable scientifically it's just if if that person had that sort of experience for example there's a lot of uh, near-death experience you know walk toward the light all that stuff oh yeah is that a spiritual experience or is that merely the brain some problem with the brain shutting down then you come back and it's well it gets into larger matters when you die and you, mm-hmm. you become brain dead, what may be objectively, say, five minutes, may to you subjectively as the person who's dying be centuries in eternity. Mm-hmm. Whoa. If, you are, if you are conditioned to believe that when you die, for example, you go to your whatever heaven you've envisaged, your Christian afterlife, whatever, if you really sincerely believe that, would you see that? Mm-hmm. And if subjectively time does not exist when you're dying and dead, you could be there. You could be there for as long as, I mean, there would be no time. So is that replicable? Is that a scientific fact? No. Is it a scientific fact that that doesn't exist? No. We don't know. It's a scientific possibility. It's a scientific possibility that either it could exist right. or not exist. So it's the same with the whole spiritual spiritualism business. Maybe it could exist and help. Maybe it doesn't. Well, we're leaving science as a metric, I think, with this particular <laughs> series before we go into yeah. our next ones. But it's uh, impact. And what's impactful is more important question to the spiritual journey. But that's also why you know, we began this show with discussions of spiritualism. And I think we will Mm. always come back to Houdini and his later incarnation as James Randi, where they were so situated in wanting to believe, yet keeping it honest. And so exposing the tricks as they came up, because of a, I think, a genuine internal desire of still wanting it to be true. What would have been much more interesting would have been having Houdini alive to gauge remote viewing and telekinesis and to to be around to know that that's replicable that could be taught he could do it that would have been something that he would have wanted to do because he would have been able to expose whether it's true or not and and if he could do it that would have been a whole different thing one of the things that we saw with remote viewing was that they were able to reproduce diagrams of things like that submarine in Russia. And Houdini would have then be able to, could have in theory, been able to reproduce drawings of how you're doing the mechanisms behind the secret boxes and whatever new trick that someone's concocted. He would have Mm -hmm. been, he would have been a really excellent remote viewer because of all of his training in magic and the mechanisms of magic. Someone write that fan fiction for me, please. <laughs> I mean, that, that would have worked uh, brilliantly. And, you know, it's just too bad that they, they didn't think to have magicians, uh, professionals. That they, <laughs> of, course, of course, the problem is it was military and it was right. just, first it's CIA, you know, they don't want to tell anybody. Then it's military, but it's in an abandoned building, you know, I mean, it's low, low, low level stuff. And, you know, when you're talking a $50,000 budget that's renewed under various guises, $50,000 is nothing. And you're talking yeah. a three, $3 billion toilet or something. You know, I mean, they're not investing a lot of resources in this. But I should say that in the original proof of concept that was done out in California by the Stanford guys, 
they had former magicians in that group. Russell Tark was a oh, stage yeah. magician in yeah, his yeah. youth. And so I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah. They structured so many of those experiments by trying to cover all the bases that a stage magician would use, which was what made that early right. research so compelling. That way they were framing it of how could some, something slip through. Right. That's very Houdini friendly methodology. Yeah. He might become the patron saint of this podcast. <laughs> I think he might be. I mean, I feel like I relate just in the in the sense that I'm not like an expert materialist the way that he was. Like he knew how to create stage illusions. But all evidence does indicate he really wanted this stuff to be true and would accept nothing less than absolute proof. And that's what made him so effective and prolific in debunking. But I... I would say not even absolute proof, meaningful proof, which he never seemed to get in his life, which was even that individual N of one right, impactful right. experience he never got. He always got the the weird things of Conan Doyle's wife saying, oh, I'm feeling your yeah. mother. And then she only writes in English and draws a cross when she was Jewish and right, spoke right. German. And arguably, Houdini didn't get it after he died either, because the secret message right. that he, he had to be relayed was never... We never quite got maybe it. Maybe you could, as an ambassador, of the podcast at go to the public Houdini seances that happen down in California now during Halloween. So I'll be I'll be extremely happy to fit that in with my regular Halloween visit to Salem. <laughs> Salem, Massachusetts, not Salem, Oregon. Yes, that's, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Massachusetts is where it's at, especially in Halloween. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh well, Deb, thank you so much for coming on our yeah. show. And well, you're welcome. It was a lively conversation. And may I say, I think your, your podcast is terrific and extremely dense in terms of a topic. Not that you two are dense, <laughs> but the topic is, <laughs> is certainly stuff that it's very, it's not a casual topic to listen mm. to. You really, you really have to pay close attention because various things that you guys are saying are right on the spot. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's always a joy to talk with you. Thank you. Bye, Dad. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.